Black people come to this present moment in time feeling themselves the product, I think, of this massive amalgamation of sort of social engineering circumstances, which make life incredibly frustrating and difficult for folks who look at the lifestyle that you know, most white people seem to enjoy from the limited vantage point of somebody whose whole life experience is in black urban America, at least, right? And say, well, why isn't it, you know, why can't it be that way for us? What is, you know, what are the things that are keeping us from being able to achieve this type of security and prosperity that other communities know? And so I don't think most people, white or black, are able to analyze that whole situation entirely. But what folks feel is that there are factors uh, keeping them rooted in place that need to be uh, confronted on a systematic level, and they're right. But we just have to get the analysis right, because it doesn't mean that everybody in these systems or institutions is racist. What it does mean is that these institutions are the product of the history that has led us here, and we have to understand that history. Okay, my guest today is John Wood Jr. John is a writer and commentator whose work focuses on creating understanding between polarized groups around contentious social and political issues. A former nominee for Congress in the 43rd District of California is currently a national ambassador for Braver Angels, America's largest grassroots cross-partisan organization dedicated to political depolarization. Um, John, thanks a lot for coming on E2 Review. Yeah, bro. It's great to be on here with you. Um, so, yeah, as we were just discussing before I started recording, you are involved with Braver Angels. So if you could give me kind of a bit of a breakdown about how you got involved in that and also what it is that Braver Angels aims to do, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'll, I will um, answer the second question first. So like you said, Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization focused on the work of political depolarization. Now, you know, what that means is sort of tamping down on the animosity between the different sides of the political argument to create space for people to actually, one, develop a genuine human understanding of folks on the other side, two, establish relationships, and three, through those relationships, actually do things to move the ball forward in terms of developing the progress of our communities and uh, facilitating the ultimate progress of our political system, right? And so we do that uh, in a variety of different ways in a number of different areas. The thing that we were originally known for was our uh, red and blue workshops. Basically, it was this, this model designed by Professor William Doherty of the University of Minnesota, who's a co-founder of Braver Angels, very prominent family therapist, where we take small groups of folks from the uh, right and from the left, or reds and blues, as we say, in-house, bring them together not so much to argue or, de argue or debate politics, but to speak from the vantage point of their own personal experience through exercises led by a, led by a, a, a moderator um, to give a window into why it is the other side, uh, why it is each side thinks the way that they do on a given, on a given set of issues. And so it is quite literally uh, marriage counseling for Republicans and Democrats, at least our, our original sort of program format. Now, since then, uh, we've expanded our work into a number of different uh, into a number of different program offerings, and we've become uh, much more engaged in the larger sort of political and media conversation 
um, online uh, in particular. And so right now our most popular program offering is something called a Braver Angels Debate. Uh, we've been holding these online since the lockdown commenced. We generally have, you know, five, six, seven hundred people register for each uh, each event that we do. And these debates are meant to uh, give people on, you know, the different sides of any issue the opportunity to to actually debate uh, the issue, but to do so from a vantage point that is less focused on winning or losing and more focused upon our on our bringing intellectual honesty into a given conversation, right? So the idea is for you to make your best case, say it's you wanna defund the police, right? The idea is for you to make your best case in terms of why we ought to do that, but to also be honest and clear in terms of what you don't know about a particular issue, where your uncertainties might lie. And there's meant to be space in this program for people to even shift or change their minds midstream if that should happen to be the case. And so even in the debate format, we're trying to apply intellectual rigor, but still uh, create the space for folks to be able to see uh, to see the human dignity in opposing perspectives. Because without that understanding, there's no basis for relationship. And if there's no basis for relationship, there's no basis for a healthy sort of civic society. Um, now you asked me the question, how did I get into this work? That's an even longer answer. Yeah. Um, but the short version of that is, well, you know, I, I've always um, been sort of in the business of sort of facilitating dialogue between different groups because I was kind of kind of a product of different groups. I come from a biracial family background, which uh, in a family that has a strong mix of very wealthy people and very poor people. Uh, I also come from a somewhat bipartisan uh, family. And um, so growing up, I thought of myself as being more left-leaning. As I got older, I thought of myself as being a bit more right-leaning. But in each case, I was always uh, considered myself to be an acolyte of the philosophy of nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy. So I tried to apply that to politics when I ran to ran for Congress, tried to speak in a language that was sort of universalist in trying to bring folks from across the political spectrum into a more collaborative way of looking at political problem solving. After my uh, run for Congress, I tried to bring that philosophy into the Republican Party on an institutional level where I was elected uh, uh, vice chairman of the Republican Party in LA County. Um, didn't work too well. <laughs> so ultimately, uh, I decided to go off and do my own thing. Okay, so at the moment, I mean, it seems kind of self-evident, but do you think that things are particularly polarized and assuming that you probably do, I don't know, what do you think the kind of causes that are? And also related to that, do you necessarily think it's a bad thing? I'm guessing based on the whole kind of program and way in which Brave Angels is set up that you probably do, but I, I guess it's worth looking at why and if so, what you think kind of the impact of the current situation is on national discourse and, and so on. Sure. Yeah. So once again, let me uh, take your second question first. Is polarization actually a bad thing? First of all, there are a couple of different meanings to the word polarization. There's polarization on the basis of where our opinions fall on the spectrum of ideological or policy preferences, right? And yeah. so you're a democratic socialist and I'm a you know libertarian free market capitalist. We're going to be pretty polarized in terms of where we fall uh, on policy matters, right? Um, I don't actually think that that's a bad thing, that type of polarization. I mean, you know, it's inevitable in a country of 300 plus million people coming from dramatically different cultural and intellectual backgrounds that you're going to get uh, that type of disparity. 
um, the dangerous sort of polarization and the polarization that we're most concerned with is uh, what you would refer to as aff affective polarization. And what that is, is sort of the deep-seated personal animus that exists between groups of people on the basis of their political uh, points of view. And obviously that type of polarization can exist and does exist in ethnic and religious and cultural contexts as well. And that's all increasingly relevant to the work that we're doing. And Brave Rangels, uh, likewise, and myself personally, of course. Um, and so that is the type of polarization, however, that is most, uh, uh, most, most concerning at the moment. Now, you ask the question, how did we get here? There are a number of different explanations uh, for this. I tend to focus on, um, well, I tend, I tend to focus on two things, maybe, maybe three. On the one hand, uh, there is the natural sort of demographic shift of American political life dating back to the 1960s in particular. As a matter of fact, both of the things I'm gonna say to you here are gonna root back to the 1960s. Um, in the early 1960s, um, well, prior to the 1960s, the United States of America basically was you know, a, a country of a solid white majority with a substantial African-American minority. And there are other groups, uh, including, including uh, Latinos, including some Asians and so forth. And obviously you had different ethnicities within white America, but uh, it was a white and black country predominantly. Then moving into the 1960s, you had, a, uh, you had an expansion of immigration, which was you know, in obviously something that is culturally enriching for the nation. I say, obviously, I should just say in my opinion, uh, having grown up in Los Angeles, you don't have Los Angeles without the heavy influence of Latino culture and so forth. Um, other groups, though, through the civil rights movement, both through immigration and in the uplifting of different voices, the voices of women, the voices of the gay community, and of course, the voice of the African-American community in particular, began to have a say in sort of the landscape of power, culture, influence, and politics in American life that I think... Uh, uh, brushed up in some respects uh, pretty hard against the sort of uh, more kind of um, uh, the more the, the, the less kind of um, ethnic identity rooted and the more sort of classically liberal sort of, you know, largely secularized language of institutional American life uh, that had been sort of the predominating norm uh, of American uh, of American institutional and political interaction. Leading up to the 1960s, um, that paradigm starts to shift through the 60s and then into the 70s and 80s. And that's where folks start to talk about the emergence of a type of identity politics that some folks look at. I mean, you could, you know, Jonathan Haidt, Mark Lilla, uh, Jordan Peterson, probably, although he's got a different way of defining identity politics from some folks. Um, but this is where a shift starts to happen, where the language of social progress begins to begins to uh, diverge into different streams, right? And so um, that winds up meeting, uh, joining, um, that, that winds up being an issue that interacts in a combustible way with another thing that begins to happen in the 1960s, and that's the diversification of American media. Now, in the 60s, it was still simple. You had the advent of television. And without television, you probably wouldn't have had the civil rights movement uh, be as successful as it was because it dramatized the suffering of activists in a way that caught the nation's attention. We're seeing that again today in, in many respects. 
Um, but in the 1960s, you still had the three major broadcast networks, NBC, CBS, ABC. Um, but going into the 70s and into the 80s, eventually you would have the emergence of cable television. You would have the emergence of CNN, I think, in the 80s uh, and the 24-hour news cycle, uh, which suddenly begins to make politics uh, a sort of a consumer lifestyle for some folks in the way that it wasn't for anybody uh, you know, I guess outside of the Beltway uh, prior prior to that, you had um, the emergence of talk radio. You had Rush Limbaugh coming into coming in, I think, in the late '80s, early '90s, I think, um, and a whole new universe that, with the elimination of the fairness doctrine uh, under Ronald Reagan, uh, which you can argue either way was a good or bad thing, but it created this space for this whole new sort of landscape of particularly conservative talk radio show hosts to come up and own a certain major chunk of the informational universe, just as CNN was claiming its own sphere uh, on television. You had Fox News that came in uh, that came in a little bit later and so helped solidify that divide in the TV space. Meanwhile, the mainstream uh, media networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, I think became more visibly sort of aligned with the sort of left of center mainstream. So you had this balkanization that was taking place in a way that made the 90s uh, relative to the time period that preceded it, uh, helped contribute to a more polarized environment then than what you had seen uh, prior to. And of course, in that era, you have the impeachment of Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, all that. Um, but all of that is before you add in social media. Right. Yeah. And once you get to social media, all of the problems that you see building through that informational kind of, you know, balkanization in the 90s suddenly goes up, uh, you know, degrees of magnitude in terms of now our ability to sort of fracture the informational landscape in a way that allows us to silo ourselves uh, into cocoons um, of, of social and, and political input that sort of help pejorativize, if that's a word, I don't think it is, I just made it up, to help us, you know, to help us villainize or demagogue people who fall outside of that bubble without actually getting the whole picture within it, right? So the native language of social progress has already changed. You already have these organic kind of cultural fissures in American life uh, that help split the parties apart in more tribal fashion. White folks went to the Republican Party in the South over time. Black folks and minorities migrated into the Democratic Party. And so suddenly it's just culturally more tribal. But then, you know, you, you, you add to that the technological aspect of it. And that gets you a long way uh, towards where we are today. Yeah. And so, I mean, related to that, you can see what's going on at the moment with the Black Lives Matter protest. That's something which I really wanted to speak to you about because it's obviously a very polarizing issue. Um, but you've spoken about the need for nuance in the discussion around it. So could you give me a kind of breakdown of your understanding and interpretation of the current situation in America, particularly with regards to Black Lives Matter? Right, yeah. Well, so the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, is something that um, if we want to drill into just the even more sort of precise cluster, you know, Cluster F of our current current moment. Um, the so a lot of things are are uh, conspiring to make this a moment for Black Lives Matter as just as a pure social force, whether you support it or don't. 
one way or the other. Um, you know, polarization was already at a peak place. Donald Trump, uh, I think, whether you love him or hate him, represents, I think he's sort of uniquely uh, sort of not programmed to speak across the sort of racial and social divide in a healing or consensus building sort of way, right? So, you know, even if you love him, he's a destabilizing factor in all of this. But with the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown uh, that produced, you know, 40 million unemployed Americans in about 10 weeks or so, you had a situation where all of this sort of built up uh, polarized tension uh, was set against the backdrop of a larger instability and the fact that people were home and idle and, and anxious to do something to begin with, particularly the young people, uh, to where uh, a single incident like the like the uh, the killing of George Floyd is something that sort of sparked this mass kind of you know this this mass not just pandemonium but also righteous zeal for justice, right? Um, and so, where does that righteous zeal for justice come from in this context? Um, it's a mix. It's a mix of things. But um, here's here's where the nuance comes in for me. Black America is um, faced a unique uh, kind of arrangement of um, of oppressive social circumstances from slavery to the current day in American life. Um, that is the context within which you have to see the reaction to George Floyd. Um, and uh, I could go down, I could go down a, a litany of things. Um, but th the thing that I think your viewers might, might want me to acknowledge potentially, and I have no problem acknowledging this because it needs to be said, even though not very few people in the mainstream media want to say this, if you look at just the simple statistics in terms of, you know, police homicides of, of, of African-Americans, um, particularly the killing of unarmed African-Americans by police. According to the most comprehensive databases uh, we have, and none of them are, are foolproof, but you know, uh, journalistic databases like the Washington Post uh, have reported something, reported something like, I think, nine killings of unarmed Af African-Americans by, uh, by police in, I think, 2018 or 2019. Um, in other words, as uh, Coleman Hughes uh, told me um, in our last conversation, um, the sampling that of, of police homicides by uh, police killing of unarmed African-Americans is deeply non-random because you pick these, these things up on social media and they become news stories around the world. They become symbols of a broader injustice, right? And so to my mind, um, and I say this conceding the fact that there may be more of these incidents that we're aware of, but if there are, then I would really encourage folks who think that that might be the case to try and figure out where the statistics are hiding, hiding the truth in terms of the frequencies of these events. I can yeah. tell you anecdotally, I live in inner city Los Angeles. I can go down a list of you know, young black guys I know in my family and in my neighborhood uh, who've been killed in you know, different manners of, of violence. I can't think of a single person I know personally uh, who's been killed by been killed by the police. Obviously, it happens, but you know, um, the, the the magnitude of it it feels so much more common because of the attention that we give to it, right? So let me put that on the table. Uh, having said that, like I said, I do think that the Floyd killing, um, the killing of George Floyd, it's so visceral, visceral beyond just that kind of you know, beyond whatever is in the social media amplification of it, 
because black life is actually, um, you know, uh, genuinely sort of, um, well, black life is genuinely difficult in America for structural reasons that don't have overwhelmingly much to do with the agency of African-Americans. And so this is where I start saying things that, you know, folks on particularly on the right and some of the center left might sort of feel a little bit of a, a reluctance towards, but a little bit of resistance to, but, but hear me out really quick. The thing that people don't get about black history is that, yes, we all know about slavery. At this point, folks know about redlining. We know about the Ku Klux Klan. We know about Jim Crow. Folks tend to have the sense, however, that black life in terms of, you know, aggregate opportunities for African-Americans started getting a lot better with the civil rights movement. And that after Dr. King led the charge that produced uh, equality under the law, things, uh, you know, it was at that point just up to black people to make to make things right, right, to take personal responsibility. And sadly, the African-American community has failed to do that. I mean, that's the that's the kind of storyline that you, you you get from a lot of people. And it's understandable um, because great strides were made during the civil rights movement that did produce, um, roughly speaking, equality before the law In integrated schools. You had you know, the right to vote was largely secured. Some people will talk about the things that they're doing in Georgia and Alabama today, but you don't have the type of Jim Crow policies now that you had uh, that you had back then. Um, but a lot of other things happened, again, starting in the 1960s. By the way, I should just say, everything we're seeing today is sort of the sequel to what we, <laughs> to what we experienced in the 60s. This will be another example for you. Um, the, um, I, I, I mentioned the fact that um, starting in the 1960s, you had, uh, I'm going to go through a number of factors here to sort of dress up where Black America is today. Starting in the 1960s, you had immigration policies um, that uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, he changed immigration policy from one that focused on the economic sort of, you know, status of, of immigrants or rather the vocational kind of status of immigrants to one that focused on family connections. So the idea of chain migration was introduced in that time. And so you had particularly many immigrants coming in from Latin America, uh, moving into places like, well, moving into the Southwest and California. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. During the 1950s, preceding those uh, reforms in the early 1960s, African-Americans dominated in the agricultural sector, they dominated in the service sector. Um, And so uh, with these immigration policies, again, great for America in many, many ways, uh, but it produced an economic dislocation for a segment of the black community uh, that was significant, particularly out in the West. Now, in other, in, in other parts of the country, including uh, the West, but also in the Rust Belt, um, during the late 60s and certainly across the 70s and 80s, you had a decline of manufacturing. You had jobs that went overseas to China and elsewhere uh, that eliminated another major part of the black uh, professional and, and working classes occupational base. So with the decline of manufacturing, of service jobs, of agricultural opportunities, you had a, you had a contraction uh, in avenues for social mobility and economic uplift for the African-American community. Now, um, step, step ahead uh, uh, pace. You had the introduction of the welfare state in a way that introduced a certain level of disposable or discretionary income to the African-American community while not replacing the lost economic opportunities, the lost economic and social mobility that is important, not just for economic uh, prosperity, but for social and community health. 
Add to this the design, the fact that the design of these programs uh, was set in place in a way that incentivized uh, single parenthood, uh, that rewarded families who, well, you know, sort of provided more benefits to unmarried parents, right, in a way that made it economically unwise for the father to actually marry the mother. And so you have a, a circumstance that impacts negatively against family formation, which is a critical component of the health of any, of any community, right? That's stepping ahead a second pace, step ahead a third pace. And keep in mind that in this time, you see the decapitation of the primary leadership of the black community nationally, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the death of Malcolm X, the death of you know, Midgar Evers and Fred Hampton and other wings of the uh, black activist spectrum. Uh, in communities like uh, my own, South Central Los Angeles, Watts, which had a historically terrible relationship with law enforcement, and law enforcement was gen generally abusive towards the, towards the community here, certainly in those years. Um, you had the formation of gangs that were inspired by the uh, Black Panthers, by the militant groups that arose in an effort to combat that police uh, brutality. But then as you move into in past the late 60s, after the grief and the bitterness of the political assassinations, and the hardships of the civil rights movement, as you go into, the, as you turn the corner into the early 70s and so forth, and particularly as you get into the late 70s and the 80s, you have the introduction of substances like heroin and then ultimately crack cocaine uh, into the black community. And this is the most important thing that nobody ever talks about in a comprehensive way, left or right in terms of what that did to the black community and how that defined community and police relationships in a way that still reverberates very strongly to this day. Because what you had was, you had a circumstance in which once you get well into the 70s, and certainly once, you, once you're into the 80s, um, genuine economic opportunities for African-Americans uh, are, are contracted. Um, the incentives for family formulation are already being challenged as perhaps an unintended consequence of, of, state, uh, of state policy. You have genuine bitterness and grief over, over the losses that were experienced on the highest level of Black leadership before that. You lost some of that more mature cultural and social leadership. And in that vacuum uh, where, you know, where you had the early sort of gangs that arose to protect the Black community, uh, you had the introduction of a substance that became a perverse answer to many questions. It became a way by which uh, young African-American men in particular could achieve wealth, could achieve status, could achieve social mobility uh, by moving a product that was, of course, ultimately poisonous to every aspect of the community. And, uh, you know, this is something that came into Black communities at a moment in which Black communities were, again, uniquely vulnerable. Uh, undercut by policies of the state in terms of family formation, um, able to eat, but not able to actually rise, right? Uh, and so um, in this context, the heavy hand of law enforcement arises in response uh, to the proliferation of drugs in the inner city, to the proliferation of violence. And this law enforcement response is itself corrupt uh, on a wide number of levels. I mean, it's responding to a real problem. But if you see movies like American Gangster, what that tells is the story of, you know, in part, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the NY uh, uh, PD uh, responding to, I mean, the, the star of the story is Frank Lucas, who's, uh, you know, sort of the Jackie Robinson of <laughs> organized crime in a way, or I guess that was Bumpy Johnson, but, you know, in, in Harlem. So he's this big heroin dealer. But what you find is 
in this war that takes place between the between the police in New York and folks who are dealing and distributing um, heroin, Frank Lucas, you find that a great number of the a majority of the of the officers uh, in the force are on the take, right? So in other words, they're locking people up, but they're also profiting from the trade by allowing some people to continue to market the products while they're keeping some of the profits uh, for themselves. And so um, you have brutality interacting with corruption in these interactions between law enforcement and the black community in cities like Harlem and cities like Los Angeles and urban centers and urban centers elsewhere. And, um, you know, at the same time, you have, you have, uh, you know, you have education policies that are locking African-American communities in underperforming school districts. Um, you have healthcare policies, which make available sort of the most substandard sort of level of healthcare through programs like Medicaid, which are underfunded relative to private insurance and so forth. You have all of these ways in which if you just take your average black person who lives in a city like Watts or Detroit or elsewhere, um, the number of sorts of obstacles that they have in front of them, if they're going to just try and graduate from inner city life to a healthy sort of middle-class lifestyle in a safe neighborhood, um, the number of landmines is sort of remarkable. But within that, there becomes a poisoning of the relationship between, a further poisoning of the relationship between people in the African-American community and the institutions of broader American life and, you know, who are associated, you know, mostly with the white majority, right? In a way that sows the seeds of deep distrust um, so coming out of the 80s, a lot of these problems actually start to get better, at least in terms of, you know, uh, police and community relationships. I mean, you have the Rodney King riots in, in uh, 1992, but police, uh, but incarceration rates after, well, so incarceration rates spike in the 90s with the, what they call the Clinton crime bill and so forth. But ultimately, um, over the last 20, 25 years or so, Incarceration rates have been on the decline. Police killings of black people have been on the decline. Gang violence has been on the decline. Um, but it still represents such a, the violence of inner city life and the sort of structural cocooning of opportunity represents such a predominant circumstance in the African-American experience. And coupled with the fact that so many folks in the African-American community were locked up in the 80s, remain you know, locked up into the 90s. And these incarceration rates relative to everybody else are still so staggeringly you know, enormous um, that black people come to this present moment in time feeling themselves the product, I think, of this massive amalgamation of sort of social engineering circumstances which make life incredibly frustrating and difficult for folks who look at the lifestyle that you know most white people seem to enjoy from the limited vantage point of somebody whose whole life experience is in black urban America at least, right? And say, well, why isn't it, you know, why can't it be that way for us? What is, you know, what are the things that are keeping us from being able to achieve this type of security and prosperity that other communities know? And so I don't think most people, white or black, are able to analyze that whole situation entirely, but what folks feel is that there are factors uh, keeping them rooted in place that need to be uh, confronted on a systematic level, and they're right. But we just have to get the analysis right, because it doesn't mean that everybody in these systems or institutions is racist. What it does mean is that these institutions are the product of the history that has led us here, and we have to understand that history. 
Yeah. So that, okay. So that's a really helpful analysis. So, cause something which has really stood out to me is the fact that it kind of seems just self-evident, at least from a kind of cursory look at it, that the situation for black Americans is not a great one. And there's obviously changes which could be made, whether I, I, exactly what they are, I don't think is completely clear, but some sort of change could definitely be of great benefit. And the idea that you can just pin everything down to kind of cultural issues in the black community, which some right-wing commentators like to do, seems a bit um, shallow in the sense that it's ignoring the huge structural and historic, well, especially the historical reasons for the existing right. situation in those communities. And that, mm. that definitely seems to me to be kind of a blind spot on the conservative analysis of this issue because they, it just isn't, it isn't capable of taking, it doesn't effectively take into account the history which has given rise to the situation which faces black America. But at the same time, there also seems to be a really strong push to just accept this narrative that racism explains everything. And the definition of racism is so broadly used and so unsophisticated and is almost deliberately vague to the extent that you have like a massive push in corporate institutions to have sub like you know anti-subconscious bias training and loads of these different things which are kind of it's not even clear cut that they work or that there are issues with that whole way of analyzing it and white fragility and white guilt and all of those things might be little issues potentially which could be ironed out but really in in terms of this situation facing the average working class black american person it, their situation can't be explained through things like just subconscious bias there's a much more complex history to it and that can't, and, and kind of the focus on that side of things and the insistence that the police are racist, which actually is way less, it's not completely clear cut in the way that it's presented, but that could also be true. So what the point I'm trying to get across is the situation is an incredibly complex one and both sides seem to be lacking the actual nuance to understand accurately what's going on. If, if someone says to you, there is racism in America and that's what's holding black people back. Or if you, if someone says to you, oh no, these are entirely cultural issues, you need to find a middle ground. What would be your kind of summary of how best to understand the situation, how to move forward? So the, the, um, the question of racism, how racist is America and how do we understand the social push towards sort of enforcing a kind of anti-racism that seems to, you know, from many circumstances, perspectives, including mine, insert a meaningful racism into, into minds and psychologies and systems where it is not necessarily present, is one that has to be viewed, I think, uh, through in part through the lens of Black America, but mostly through the lens of white America and the effort of white Americans to, uh, particularly, you know, progressive white Americans, and the younger you get, the more true this is, uh, to to atone for a historic guilt and to live up to a way of being in the world that is absolving, I think, um, of you know of the guilt of our of our ancestors. The problem is all of the excess and inaccuracy uh, that you're that you're mentioning. Here's the thing, um, America, um, for folks who just you know look at it and say America is clearly not a racist country, there's a lot of reason to sympathize with that point of view, and I do broadly speaking. Um, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, the impact of the civil, social, uh, the civil rights movement, the impact of his death, um, it really did change the cultural conversation in America. Um, I mean, you know, people, not universally, but overwhelmingly in this country and internationally, 
uh, approved of the morality of that effort. You saw the integration, obviously, of our of our school systems in a way that brought people into closer contact with each other. You did have avenues for certain African-Americans through politics, through academia and other channels to go into the middle class and to move into white neighborhoods. Um, most of the black community was not in that circumstance, but enough were to make integration visible. Um, athletes from Muhammad Ali to Michael Jordan, artists like Michael Jackson and other folks became the most popular representatives of, Amer of American culture. And so by the time you get to Barack Obama, a lot of folks feel felt that, oh, hey, you know, the, um, the, the, the legacy of racism in America has been defeated. On the other hand, uh, you have folks who recognize the persistence of these structural issues. And for white folks in particular, who I think tend to want to, want to see that as an outgrowth of the inner sort of racism that produced the racist systems of history, including some of the things that you know we were just talking to, um, just speaking about, although mostly this is something we think about in terms of the things that precede the 60s, Jim Crow, et cetera. Um, but for white people who want, who, who tended to see that, see, see the persistence of problems in black life as an extension of white racism in a personal way, not just in a structural way, there needed to be a way of analyzing that way of being in the world that was able to sort of shoot past the fact that suddenly everybody thinks just about, or at least the vast majority of Americans and white Americans believe that that all men are created equal and that therefore separately equal is not a just policy, that ultimately folks need to be equal before the law. There needed to be a way to dig deeper into the psychology of white folks, I think, uh, to be able to show how it is that subtle discomforts, subtle biases were themselves actually sort of the, the, the living and breathing and even thriving remnant, you know, uh, or descendant, perhaps better stated, of that more virulent, conspicuous racism that you saw demonstrate, demonstrated throughout American history leading up to Bull Connor and Jim Crow, right? The yeah. problem with that analysis, though, is that ultimately human beings are just prejudiced and, and uh, tribal creatures anyway, right? We find all sorts of reasons to be uncomfortable with each other uh, on the basis of, you know, differences in culture primarily. And yes, appearance and race can correlate to, to culture and it can be a signifier of culture, but it's not exactly the same thing. It's a problem. It's not the same thing as racism. It, it can be a problem to be sure, but it's not the thing that accounts for everything that's wrong in American life, even though it has a relationship to so many things that are. So just a quick example. Um, I grew up, uh, so obviously I mentioned I'm uh, biracial, I'm half African-American, half white. Um, I grew up uh, sort of speaking the king's English in my father's words, because my, my white father was very adamant that I speak, uh, speak a certain way and so forth, you know. Sometimes that set me apart a little bit from some of my black peers who spoke in a bit more of a dialect. And I would, you know, I'd sort of code switch, go back and forth, because I was going back and forth in my family uh, upbringing. Um, but, you know, I was looked at as being a bit more white as a black person culturally, right? which was, which was true. Um, but I grew my hair out when I got to be about 15 or 16 and eventually got long enough to braid. And so I braided it up, uh, into, into cornrows, right? Like, yeah. Alan Ackerman, Dog, or something like that. And, um, you know, uh, folks, the folks in the blacks, you know, my black friends sort of started looking at me differently and everybody was very happy because suddenly I was exhibiting some flavor, right? <laughs> But uh, I noticed that uh, white people suddenly were acting a little bit differently around me, particularly white folks who didn't know me. 
So, you know, I was not the type of black person who was typically followed in, in the store, I, you know, a bit lighter complexion and so forth. Um, when I would speak to white people, I would tend to put them at ease because I was speaking to them in my native environment the way I'm speaking to you now as sort of in a dictum and so forth that, that was uh, uh, familiar, right? I remember, though, uh, getting out of school one day um, with my hair braided now. Now I've got a distinctly more ethnic look. And I noticed that, you know, like folks weren't making eye contact with me as easily, particularly a lot of, lot of, lot of white, white people. It was just a shift in body language. And so I decided to just sort of test this uh, somehow a little bit. I was walking down the sidewalk, leaving school. There's a white guy who's dressed business casual, slacks, business shirt, and so forth. And um, I, uh, I was on my way to catch the bus. I didn't know whether I had missed it. I said, uh, I said hey, excuse me. Uh, and he, he immediately sort of like looked away from me. And uh, I, so I trick tested out. I called him again. I said, I, I said hey, uh, excuse me. And he goes and he digs in his pocket for his phone. And finally, I raised my voice a little bit. I'm like, excuse me. You know, and he looks up a little bit nervous. And I say, I'm sorry. I said, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm trying to catch the bus. And I don't know whether I may have missed it by five minutes or if I'm just on time. Could you tell me uh, what the time happens to be? And he sort of like, sighed in relief, you know, and yeah. uh, he looked at his phone. He said, oh, he said, it's uh, it's 245. I was like, great. Thank you very much. He said, yeah, you have a good day. Um, what I came to realize was that it wasn't the color of my skin that was setting people off. I already knew that. But when I changed my hair, I suddenly became a different type of black person. In other words, I was sending a different cultural signal, right, um, right. with the hairstyle that I hadn't hadn't before. And so, you know, a lot of people will chalk that up to racism. It's not racism as such. What it indicates is that culturally we are unfamiliar with each other um, in a way that sort of introduces obstacles to, to, to genuine empathy and proper communication in a way that does have consequences for the way society works. But that's not in and of itself a unique problem to, to white people um, or to any other group of people. You may argue that it has unique consequences but the antidote for that is empathy. The antidote for that is an approach to facilitating communication, which I think we you know, uh, are good at at Braver Angels, that allows us to develop, to develop insights of understanding into who the other person is on the other side of the cultural divide. What the answer to that is not, I think, is a type of bias training or a type of reprogramming of white people, oftentimes by white people, um, that sort of situates the historic guilt on the shoulders of you as the individual, you as the individual white person, right? To sort of have to look at yourself as kind of being not just uniquely responsible for the crimes of your ancestors, but uniquely susceptible to their particular sort of, to their particular sort of wickedness in terms of how it is you go about looking at and treating other, other people. It doesn't mean that there aren't honestly things that, you know, we as, you know, that, that, that white folks might need to improve upon in terms of intercultural empathy. But again, that is a broadly human project. It is a particularly American project. And we should pay careful uh, attention and consideration to how we push that project forward without making people feel guilty in interactions with each other on the base of, basis of their identity as soon as they step into a room, right? Because ultimately, that's just a recycling of the age-old racial... Uh, you know, racial, the age-old problem of the type of racism that has been with us in American life from the beginning. It's a very new form, um, but it is a problem. 
You know, so, we should say people feel guilty for being white, just like people shouldn't have ever felt guilty or inferior for being black. So when it comes to the situation uh, facing black Americans in their encounters with the police, because I, I, this is something which I've looked at on different podcasts before. So the statistics aren't exactly clear and definitely the understanding you get if you listen to a lot of the mainstream coverage of this, especially from the left, is that it's just one in which the police are going around arbitrarily killing black people motivated by racism. And definitely there will be instances where that does happen, but that doesn't paint a full picture because there are loads of different statistics which show that actually if you take into account key variables, it's not actually what's happening in a completely black and white sense. There is much more nuances required to understand exactly that situation. But that doesn't mean that ultimately for whatever confluence of different factors, black people in America are having a large number of interactions with the police and have a kind of really deep-seated skepticism and distrust of the police, which has been rooted in a really long history, which we've kind of briefly touched on, of kind of oppositional interactions with the police and some forms of institutional police racism, which has historically existed, and also structural issues, which have kept loads of black communities in America down and which now not don't so clearly necessarily exist in the same way but obviously there's that historic legacy which means that the system is it currently is for black people which means they come into contact with the police more who then interact differently and so it's really hard to kind of paint a full and comprehensive picture of exactly what's going on and I'm kind of uncomfortable with just saying it's all down to racism because I think that that leads to a too simplistic understanding of what's going on. But at the same time, I think just saying racism has nothing to do with it is too simplistic because it doesn't take into account the way in which racism has a kind of historic legacy, which still acts upon the present. And that's something which, you, which you've discussed. So if you could kind of quickly summarize what it, kind of how you go about looking at that situation, that'd be really helpful. Well, so, uh... Yeah, let's get into the nuances a little bit in terms of the police relationship with the African-American community in present experience, right? Obviously, this is related to the history. I think that your analysis is, is precisely right. Racism is too simplistic, but it's not that racism doesn't have anything to do with where we are. The truth right. is that um, my, my sense is that... Um, now, I'm, I'm talking to you from Watts, California, uh, right? Or just outside of Watts in South Central LA. Okay. Um, you know, this is an area where the police force is predominantly white, but the community is predominantly predominantly black. And, um, you know, there is, it's true, I think, uh, you know, higher, much higher rates of police interaction with the black community, generally speaking, uh, than with whites uh, in general. And folks will be quick to point out that that's because, well, you know, black people are guilty of more crimes, et cetera. And of course that has a relationship to the history of the seventies and the eighties that I, you know, that I pointed out and, you know, all sorts of things falling out just from, just from there. Um, but it's also true that African-Americans get arrested more for things like recreational marijuana possession, even though usage rates are the same across racial categories or very close to the same, that contributes yeah. to the incarceration. Um, there are structural issues that are still issues uh, today in terms of how law enforcement interacts with the community. But um, yeah. the, the key thing to observe here is that what looks like racism from the police department to the African-American community might actually be something that, functionally speaking, is no different than racism. 
but it's still something that we have to kind of appreciate for what it actually is as opposed to what we tend to want to call it. What do I mean by that? Um, I have a friend named Kim Iverson, uh, who's a popular uh, YouTuber, who tells a story that I now tell because it's instructive. She grew up uh, in, uh, in sort of small town Idaho um, in the 80s. And uh, when she was growing up, there was a rash of police killings of, of white people, of poor white people, that set, um, you know, set relationships back between this local community and uh, the police department because, you know, um, the police just were, were terribly, terribly hostile uh, to, these, to these poor white folks. Um, this happens in white communities too. This happens in communities where, you know, particularly white people are poor and engage some of the, or face with some of the same sorts of social and material uh, obstacles and deprivations as are black people. The nature of law enforcement is that you have to have an adversarial relationship with a certain part of the community that you are serving because you are the entity that is charged with the responsibility of utilizing force to maintain order for everybody else, right? And so what that leads to is a circumstance in which uh, there is, I think, a natural tendency, if it's not counterbalanced, uh, for law enforcement to develop law enforcement officers to develop cynicism and hostility towards at least a segment of the communities that they represent particularly in more troubled areas, regardless of what color those people may happen to be. That adversarial dynamic is a feature of law enforcement and uh, unto itself, you know, particularly when it's uh, operating in difficult communities. It's not something that's necessarily particular to law enforcement's relationship with the black community fundamentally. And yet, if you, if you make the colors, if you, if you, if you, um, if you make the colors opposite on either side of this equation, if you introduce a white law enforcement community into a poor black community where certain social problems are pre-existing for historical and systemic reasons, um, and yeah, then you get a circumstance in which that natural uh, hostility becomes color coded, right? And so if you read in a book like Ghetto Side uh, by the uh, uh, LA Times reporter, uh, Jill Leovi, I think, uh, she talks about how the internal culture of law enforcement in the LAPD became one that became, to a certain degree, generalizing and, and uh, derogatory um, towards, um, towards uh, Black people in Los Angeles, or at least, at least to the degree to where, where people in law enforcement were just sort of taken in the notion that, yeah, there's just something different uh, about Black folks, which makes them more messed up than most Mexicans and most whites and what have you. And, you know, what's wrong with, the, what's wrong with these people? And, you know, the expressions of that hostility obviously becomes more concentrated and explicit than that in, in many cases. Um, yeah. And so, you know, this is, it, it doesn't mean that the folks who signed up to put the badge on were like Klan members before they decided to go out and become police officers. That's, yeah. not, that's not necessarily the case. It's the way the relationships between law enforcement and communities are set up that produces an adversarial dynamic to begin with that happens to become color-coded when you differentiate the races in that, in that relationship. So that's yeah. why I go back to the importance of looking at prejudice, cultural prejudice, cultural misunderstanding versus innate racism as a more useful tool for understanding these dynamics. Yeah, and, and I guess the point, because often I don't get the chance to express this in podcasts, depending on kind of which ideological perspective the guest I'm speaking to is coming from. But I guess the whole point about that is it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the police 
are racist necessarily, although they may be, but the, it also doesn't necessarily make sense to say, oh, they're just responding to the situation in which they are working and the kind of brutality of life in these areas, because obviously that itself is a product, maybe not completely, but at least in large part of from the kind of historical issues which have been to some extent imposed on black Americans by racism in America and all the different economic and also other complex factors which have come into play. And so often if you just kind of take a snapshot of the situation right now, it doesn't capture the fact that the reason for a lot of the problems in those communities which are leading to interactions with the police is rooted in historic prejudice and bigotry towards those people. So I guess that's kind of interesting. That's kind of largely why I wanted to get you on as well, because I heard you gave a really good analysis of that on your podcast with Iona Italia, which I thought was great. Um, So in terms of moving forward, just briefly, what would you say is the best way to go about approaching this discussion? So, So something which stands out to me is the fact that there's been more or less complete uniform, uncritical acceptance of most tenets of the Black Lives Matter narrative across the board really um which i can definitely see has ultimately might lead to positive things happening and so it's quite hard to be too critical of that but i have an innate um sense that it's not perfect to just uncritically accept a narrative which itself in some cases is being made overly simplistic and actually paints a picture of a society where things can be explained by racism which actually require a slightly more subtle understanding in order to avoid this type of polarization we're seeing so so what's your view on that in terms of moving forward do you think it's good to just kind of ignore the kind of flaws with the narrative because the overall objectives are good and it might lead to positive shift or do you think it's important to call those things out or how would you go about that well i mean we have to be we have to strive to be sophisticated right I mean, you know, we have to recognize the fact that the raw impetus uh, towards racial justice that is represented by the just sort of core zeal of Black Lives Matter and, you know, folks who are are allied with or supportive of the movement comes from a real from a real place of, you know, recognition of the existence of injustice in American life as it is pertaining to the black experience. And so, you know, the great thing about Black Lives Matter is that it is grabbing the attention of America in a way that is causing us to be sort of, you know, to listen with more open ears uh, to to the to the arguments that are seeking to sort of illustrate, you know, the reality of the situation. Now, those arguments themselves, I think, are frequently lacking and more troubling still. They seem to be coming with a larger kind of a larger kind of social agenda, which is seen to buck against the norms of civic discourse, of freedom of speech, and of the basic kind of civic culture by which we have always invited Americans to come to the table as equals to discuss, you know, to discuss problematic issues um, from the perspectives of our own experiences and our own intellectual viewpoints so that we can arrive at a common truth. I mean, I'm not saying it's ever been exactly that straightforward or simple. It certainly hasn't been for black folks historically, Nevertheless, when Martin Luther King Jr. was leading the civil rights movement in the 1960s, what he was fighting for was for a society that preserved that equality of opportunity for us to be able to exercise free speech among among all of our other uh, God-given rights, right? Um, And so the cultural trend right now is to shut certain people out of the conversation, to establish rules by which certain people are able to enter into or not able to enter into a discussion 
on the basis of their identity. And so that's, that's you know, for folks who are worried about sort of a creeping sort of left-wing authoritarianism riding that wave, I totally understand that, you know? That, I think, is a part of this that we need to challenge directly. But on the other hand, you, one, you can't challenge it effectively unless you empathize with the larger kind of body of concerns and experiences that are that are motivating, you know, the, the good faith, the good faith core of much of this, of much of this activity. Um, one, because you don't give people on the other side of this question a reason to listen to you if you don't demonstrate that empathy. Two, it's just the right thing to do anyway, because the activists on the left, uh, they they do have a point. They are right about about just a high level truth of our situation, which is that you have this sort of historic kind of conflagration of oppressive circumstances, which you can call white supremacy or institutional racism. I have problems with those terms, but what they're pointing to is something that's real and they want the truth of this to be acknowledged. But I think that they need to empathize with where people are coming from on the other side of this too, because everybody doesn't know that history. Many of the people who are activists here don't even know that history. They, They know that there's something wrong, but they don't know completely what the larger history is. And so you have academics who are riding on one side of this wave, pushing the social agenda. You've got right-wing politicians on the other side, you know, pushing, pushing a reaction. Americans need to listen to each other. And we need to sort of honor the, the sort of sacred things that we're seeking to protect on all sides of this. A pursuit of truth and social justice on the one hand, a pursuit of truth, but also freedom of speech and preserving the civic norms of the liberal tradition on the other hand. And we need to find a way to have a discourse that allows for each of these deep moral truths to express themselves and to harmonize in a vision of social progress without allowing that project to be destroyed by the ideological free riders that are pushing more subversive agendas and less uh, collaborative agendas on top of that. And so this process is part of what we're trying to do, what I see this as trying to do um, at Braver Angels, facilitating that process uh, of coming together. Great. Well, that's a really great point to end on. Thanks so much for coming on, and uh, you're definitely welcome back whenever you like. Yeah, thank you, Max. It's uh, been a real pleasure, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Um, If you could give this show a good rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using, that's great because it really helps people find it. One final point, all of our interviews, including this one, are available on YouTube. So if you prefer watching things rather than listening to them, you can find every interview there. Just search for E2 Review Podcast, either on Google or on YouTube itself, and our page should come up. I'll also include a link to our page in the show notes. So just click on that and it'll take you there if that's easier. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>